Welcome to Education, Leadership, and Beyond, Surviving and Thriving. My name is Andrew Murata, host of the show, and it is show number 223. Good afternoon. Happy Monday. Happy September. And uh, proud member of the Education Podcast Network, Voice Ed Radio Canada, iTunes, wherever you are taking in your podcast. Happy to be on with you. Thanks for listening. If you're watching live, jump in with a, a question or a comment today. Um, excited to be on and excited to be rolling. Looking forward to talking to the man himself, Ken Williams, unfold the soul, author, motivator, educator, leader, and so on. We just, we can keep going with Ken Williams. Uh, I'm excited. I love Ken's message. I love his branding. I love uh, everything he's bringing to the table uh, for educators. Uh, so we're going to talk to Ken real quick. I do want to thank today's sponsor, Ken. I'm going to try to get you some of this. Uh, sorry, when I do the virtual background, it gets a little funny here, but a uh, particle men's cream. I got in touch with this company. They're fantastic. Check them out. That discount code is amarada 20. You get your discount amarada 20. Here's the cream, right? Ken's a good looking dude. Uh, it is phenomenal, right? I'm going to put a little on right here. So smooth takes care of me. I'm getting younger now. Um, but it smells great. It feels great. It doesn't feel greasy. Uh, you feel fresh. You feel you know, just great. So particle men's cream, check them out. Discount code is a Murata 20 and check out, they got hair products. They got all kinds of good stuff. Uh, and I'm happy to be in a relationship with them. Uh, so please check them out. Particle men's cream, a Murata 20 is your discount code. Let's get rolling. Show number 223. Uh, it is the day after nine 11. Uh, I do want to give a shout out to all of our first responders, uh, all of our people that are involved uh, in everything of what 9-11 represents. I was at a great ceremony yesterday, heard some powerful firemen speak and, and just the memory of 9-11 and all that is, right? There's so much there. So certainly a shout out. Uh, and if you're a New Yorker like my brother Ken, um, you know uh, exactly what that means to us New Yorkers. And I know it touched everybody everywhere. So. But let's get rolling. Opening concept here, not being afraid to lead, not being afraid to do the hard things, right? Sometimes that's boldness. Sometimes that's brashness. Sometimes that is not afraid to make some waves. And that is the leadership uh, that Ken brings. Uh, that is what I have felt uh, from Ken's latest book. And again, sorry if you can't see this. It's a little funny with the virtual background. Ruthless Equity. It is bold. It is brash. It is honest. Uh, it has made me a better leader that I have to do more than just ask for diversity, right? Just ask to uh, have more uh, students of color in, in, you know, honors classes or upper, whatever it is, right? It's not just about that. It's, it's so much more. Uh, Ken is bold and he's brash and uh, it's made me a better leader. So for you leaders out there, um, we can't be afraid. We can't be hesitant. Um and, and really, Ken, you energized me, your book did, and, and uh, made me a better leader. So let's bring Ken in. Enough of me talking about him. <laughs> Welcome him to the program. Here he is. Thank From you, brother. Georgia. Thank you. He's got the hat on. He's ready to crown. Uh, Ken, it's an honor to have you on. Thank you, brother. It's an, it's an honor, man. I appreciate that introduction and glad the book hit you where you live. It, it, it did. And and how you know how it couldn't. Um, you know, Ken, I, we're going to get to know you during here, but uh, give us a, a real brief introduction of, of who you are and, and the message you're bringing. 
I appreciate that, man. I'm a former classroom teacher, assistant principal, and school principal. I'm a lifelong practitioner. I've led two different schools through the learning for all, you know, equity process. And for the past 15 years, I've been working with schools, districts, and leaders on how to embed the practices that lead to equity, excellence, and achievement for all students, regardless of background. It's my my life's work. It's my passion. And I, I wake up every day trying to figure out how to get the obstacles out of the way so educators can make magic for kids. Yeah, certainly. And you, and you hear that and you, and you feel that. Ken, how, how are you? You had a busy summer. You're actually home for a couple of days. Yes, sir. Uh, how did <laughs> yes, it go this summer? We kind of came out of COVID uh, back in person with people. Um, you know, how was your summer connecting with uh, educators around the country? It was great, man. It, it, it was great. I'm at a point in my career where I try to protect a little personal time. And also, you know, it's kind of a dichotomy. When I'm home long enough, I miss the road. When I'm on the road too much, I miss home. But uh, yeah, in person is in full effect. I've been on the road pretty constantly since the uh, third week of July. I think I had two days off the road in August. Wow. And um, this is a four day respite that I have right now. <laughs> and I'm excited about that. But then I'll be back on the road uh, this week. And I come up for air around Thanksgiving. So it's it's a great problem to have. I'm yeah. grateful that there's demand and just trying to empower educators to change lives, baby. That's it. Side note, I do think the pictures from the plane are very funny, by the way. <laughs> you do those sort of that, that's my that's my alias, the grumpy uncle. <laughs> yeah, I think it's great. Well, let's it's get right to it, Ken. This is your latest right. work. Uh, and 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 really, it, it really starts with that title, Ruthless Equity. Uh, tell me about this. Tell me about how you got going with this. What was your inspiration? And uh, uh, really, uh, educators, if you're looking for a burst, if you're looking for something to lead you this year, this is it. Uh, Ken, I loved it. And uh, tell me about it. Well, you know, the inspiration was uh, I wanted to write a book that just shot straight, you know, um, serves as kind of a coach on the shoulder of the educator, the leaders, and a guide on your side. And, you know, one of my litmus tests for titles is if it makes my wife cringe and ruthless definitely made her cringe some. But when I, when I think about ruthless, I think of it in terms of excellence. And so you think about anything that you've set out to become great at, whatever it is, it can be a hobby, it can be part of your professional life, your personal life. What it requires is this time is an extra time is an oxymoron. There's no such thing. We have the same 24 hour pie. And when you decide to become excellent, to become excellent at anything, you cannot give your time, attention, and focus to everything. You, in fact, have to be ruthless about the factors that advance your work with excellence and equally ruthless about those things that get in the way. And I, I think about Olympic athletes, right? So you, I can watch any competition in that, in that forum because everything in the Olympics is final. So, But what I find as compelling are the backstories of the athletes. And you hear about the hockey player who's up at 4.30 at the rink by five, is at the rink from five to 6.30, then gets home and showers, gets dressed, eats breakfast, is at the bus stop by 7.15, off to school, school to three o'clock, back at the rink at 4.30, you know, the whole thing, just to, just that kind of pursuit of excellence. And again, those athletes have to be ruthless about what serves their 
pursuit of excellence and equally ruthless about what doesn't. And I apply that to equity work because there's a lot of noise. There are a lot of systemic issues in our systems. And I'm not, not even talking about like race and culture at this point, just some policies. Educators hear so much noise about why kids can't. And I think we've just gone way too far trying to, you know, parse out every piece of data about them. Here's what I picture. I picture teachers getting their new roster of students, right? You get your 25 new students and the 15 things wrong with every student. And, you know, we have more than 40 years of research that say that we make the difference. Like the, where kids spend most of their waking hours, like we provide the, the resources and supports, guidance and mentorship to mitigate a lot of the circumstances out there. So this is my attempt at quieting the noise, calling out the elephants in the room, looking at practices that we've all done. You know, I don't present on anything I've been screwed up on a thousand times <laughs> that get in the way of our work, get in the way of what equity is. And then the equity part of it is, listen, I'm on the one hand, I'm happy that equity is on the tip of everyone's tongue. You know, I'm, I'm sorry that a, a racial incident, you know, the whole George Floyd thing, the social justice movement brought equity to the surface, but I'm glad it's on the tip of everyone's tongue. Yeah. But I've been doing equity work my entire career. I mean, I'm a, you know, I'm a PLC advocate and that's equity work from the very beginning. What I'm frustrated with is how equity has been pulled in 9,000 different directions. You had cats who were selling used cars last year. They're writing equity books this year and <laughs> equity, if you put your ear to the ground or get on social media, equity seems to be all about race and culture. And while it encompasses that, equity is not about that. So this is my attempt to codify equity. You know, you cannot achieve what you cannot define. And I've asked several thousand educators and audiences to define equity. And if I have a room of 40 people, I'm going to get 45 definitions. And so I wanted to also codify, like give teeth to a definition of instructional equity so we can focus on those things that move the needle, not just look good in terms of optics. Yeah. Yeah. Can it really? And you hit the mark, the elephant in the room. Um, I want to touch on a couple of specific points. Page 12, you talked about uh, the danger of diversity. And you say here, we've been lulled to sleep by the intention of diversity efforts, numbed by forced outcomes that appear to be positive results. Rather than explore the root causes that contribute to inequitable situations, diversity efforts address the issue cosmetically while solving nothing. Tell me about that and, and, and you know, the, the work that you're tackling here to try to get to those root causes. Sure, sure, sure. Now, listen, I've, I've struggled with this all my life. As a, as a black man in America, I'm going to tell you up front, I don't wear a target on my back. I don't go out looking for racism or prejudice. I, you know, I give everyone the benefit of doubt until you show me otherwise. That said, I'm grateful for doors that have been opened that were not open for my parents and my grandparents and my ancestors. I'm grateful for it. And, you know, I was raised in a family, I'm a first generation college grad, but you wouldn't know it listening to my mother talk, God rest her soul. You know, she just taught me, you know, if the doors, if it's cracked open for you, you got to kick it in and then give them a reason for you to stay. But I've always had an uneasy relationship with diversity efforts always yeah. have had an uneasy. And it wasn't until I wrote the book that it really became clear to me. While I don't walk around with a target on my back, I don't walk around with like racism lenses on. I have stories now 
but I, I'm not a victim. I've been victimized, but I'm not a victim. It bothers me that when I walk into a room and I've, I've been made part of a, a member of a team or hired on or just become part of an organization, it bothers me that the thought crosses my mind. Am I here because I'm black? Am I here because I'm qualified? Or is it a combination of both? That bothers me. That bothers me that I think about that. Yeah. And then I'll look across the room and I'll see a white guy, maybe like you. And then I'm wondering if you're wondering if I'm here because I'm black, I'm here because I'm qualified or a combination of both. And the thing is, I can't even be upset with you. I'm not even upset. It just bothers me that it crosses my mind. And you're even thinking about it. And so what the research I did for the book, and it, it mainly came from Cobb and Crown Apple in their book, um, Belonging um, in a Culture of Dignity. Mm -hmm. They helped me see that diversity diversity accomplishes diversity seeks to accomplish what belonging actually accomplishes so let's say we're, we're in a room and um, let's say we're at a, like a, a stadium or an arena and let's say the front row has only been reserved for men for whatever reason it's, it, you know it's, a, it's an extreme example but let's say the front row of the arena has always been occupied by men and women's come up and say, hey, listen, we pay taxes. You know, we contribute to society. There's no reason why women should not be a part of that. It becomes an issue. And diversity solves it. And I know I'm oversimplifying, but diversity solves it. If there are 10 seats, they'll take five of the seats and give them to women. And so the optics look good. But diversity rarely gets to why there were no women in the first place. Mm -hmm. And so when people don't know why change is happening and it's all on the surface and more cosmetic than anything else. It's challenging. And I think that's been some of the challenge with initiatives that try to open doors for, you know, marginalized groups and things like that. What I've, what they also helped me see in writing the book is what we really after is belonging. Belonging is what we're really after, but belonging, you got to get under that cornbread. Like you got to get under, you got to get beneath the surface with belonging. And that, that goes for staff and students. And the, the examples I give are these. I've walked into rooms where everybody in there looks like my cousin and I felt right at home. I've walked into rooms where everybody looks like my cousin and I think to myself, something's not right here. <laughs> like, mm. Something's not right. I've walked into rooms where I look like black pepper and a mound of snow. And I felt it for the wrong reasons. I've also walked into places where I look like black pepper and a mound of snow and I feel right at home. You know, I, I just started bowling last fall and, you know, someone gave me like the secret password and magic code word to join a bunch of retired Delta employees on Tuesday mornings. And I was excited about it because it's set up in a way where I don't have to find a sub if I'm traveling. So I showed up and, you know, 40 guys there and they're all having fun. We're all broken up into teams according to handicap and, I'm the only person of color, but for me, it was literally incidental. And that incidental observation lasted eight seconds because mm. while I know those guys who, if you lined them up, look like Fortune 500 CEOs all the way through hee-haw, I know they didn't sit down and say, hey, we need to create a culture of belonging that has us as an organization adjust to welcome new members as is. I know they didn't sit down and do that because these guys are my yeah. friends now. I know they didn't, but they embody that. 
it happened. They, they, yeah. they folded me in. I didn't, you know, I ask all the time about belonging to, to have learners reflect on a time where you felt compelled to change something or hide <laughs> something about yourself to fit in. And we've all done it and we've all got stories. Yeah. But true belonging is not when the person adjusts to conform to the organization, but when the organization adjusts to bring the person in as is. And that's truly, truly what we're after. I think that's, that's ultimately what diversity efforts want to accomplish. But again, fall short because we rarely get beneath the surface, you know, of why. And so I want to take that, take those same concepts to, to schools because listen, I, you an adult who gets a bad day of PD, just a, just a bad day. The presenter's not prepared, you know, either talking over their heads or condescension or whatever it is, monotone, boring. Adults will talk about that for a month, right? <laughs> talk, we'll, we'll talk about that for a month. But I tell you, like, we got kids who experience that like a hundred every day. Yeah, every day. Every day. <laughs> so there, there are some small moves we can make that cost nothing on campuses that help to foster a sense of belonging because you're not going to achieve equity without it. That's the thing. You're not going to achieve equity, especially with a clientele who sits in front of us 180 to 185 days a year if they don't feel like they belong. And again, adults in my classroom, but that's how I, that's how I come up with a lot of my concepts. If it doesn't work in adult world, then it's probably not going to work in kid world. That's true. Well, along those lines, Ken, on page 89, if you call them low, you will teach them low. Yes, sir. Having yes, sir. those kids that maybe aren't the highest performers, maybe don't have the best grades there, having those kids feel like they belong and right. getting them to work towards that. That's um, right. This was very, you talk about the elephant in the room, you know, uh, we, we talk like this. and, and, and Well, you, you hit it. on it with, with the word performance. See, that's the yeah. thing. I don't do ability. Ability is finite. Like you either have it or you don't. And that's 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 one area we get caught up. We're looking for high, average, and low. And you're talking about performance, like I talk about performance. Performance can be improved, right? And then it's it's about me. I've never, in all my years of teaching and all my years of leading, I've never ever determined outcomes based on the kids that walk in the room. That, that, that's never that's never even crossed my mind. Yeah. But it is it's rampant. And I, and it's, I don't think it's because, you know, we're bad people or we, nobody gets into this field, right, to, to do harm. But our systems are set up to move us in that way where we start looking for those ability groups. While at the same time, we make Carol Dweck, the author of the great book Mindset, we'll make her a millionaire six times over and have growth mindset posters all over the damn school. And yet we still kind of revert back to that fixed mindset. And listen, you call a kid loaded, that's what they're going to get you. That, that's, the, that's the rub of our work. So, and that's a change I've made in my work recently. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not pulling people uphill anymore. I'm not going to do it. Because if, if you believe they can't learn, I, I, I got nothing for you. And the, and the rub of the work is you're going to find exactly what you look for. You call a kid low all year long, they're going to give you a low. I've done it with adults. Just as an experiment and adults like, don't like to be ability grouped. Even when you're in a room with like, you got brand new teachers there who still got baby powder on them and 40 year engaged vets, right? I'm not saying that's ability grouping, but that's a wide range of skill and experience. And uh, 
just on a hypothetical, when I try to dumb it down and ask them to divide themselves up into high, medium, and low teacher groups, they were not happy with me. Mm. They were not, they, not even after I told them it was a hypothetical, they were not happy at all. And so I said, well, how do you think kids feel? You know, one, for the kids who know better, you know, it, it, it breeds resentment. But for most kids, we're influencers and they just believe it. Yeah. And then they'll produce that. We're going to find exactly what we look for every single time, without question. Ken, I love the message. I love your style. I also love your, your sayings, right? I love this unfold the soul. We were joking off air, right? Uh, yeah. Only special groups make make the cup. And there I appreciate you are. that, brother. Tell me about <clears throat> it. Heart, humor, hammer, the crown. How, you know, tell me about unfolding the soul. Tell me, how did you develop that? Because uh, that is your brand. That's your logo. That's your message. Tell me it about is. that. It is. I love it. Well, I you, love it. Back around 2006, man, I actually thought I was going to uh, go into like personal coaching because I, I loved self-improvement. You know, I, I grew up, my best friend in high school, Steve, brought $5 every day for lunch. And in four years of high school, I could not get my head around how his parents could give him a fresh $5 bill like every day. Every day. I mean, look at the serial numbers, just like that's a different $5 bill. Like he wouldn't pull out <laughs> the same one day after day. And I mistakenly thought that, you know, your cast in life is just set. You know, I was raised by two wonderful parents who worked two jobs and a side hustle to make ends almost neat. You know, we were, I didn't live in abject poverty, but we were broke, you know, we always had more month than the money. And I just thought kind of as the way it was. And, until the light came on about how you can, you know, manifest and create and moves you can make to, you know, improve your life. And I give my parents credit, like they improved their lives. Like everybody wants to do better than their parents and they did better than their parents who were hard workers. But um, I was reading a book, you know, Think and Grow Rich is one of, you know, outside of the, like the Bible, like Think and Grow Rich is one of the biggest bestsellers out there. But there's a little known book by Wallace Waddles called uh, The Science of Wealth. And it's kind of along the same line as Think and Grow Rich just did not get the same traction. And I read that book. And Waddles did not talk about wealth in the uh, material sense, like just making money for the sake of making money. What he talked about was like wealth is our birthright because in our society, to see all the world has to offer, we have to generate income. And generating income is a byproduct of giving value. So it's all very pure, a lot of integrity. And there was a line in the book where he talked about, you know, it's one thing to read about the Leaning Tower of Pisa. It's another thing to go see it. And he had this line that just said to fully unfold your soul. And that was it. Bam. That was it. I got an artistic friend back in Maryland who worked on a logo for me. And I've been running with it since. So even though I don't do personal development, this is what this work is. It's organizational yeah. development. It's, you know, it's building that culture from the inside out because, you know, and I said it on, you know, I, I recorded one of my podcasts today and I said this again, that when you turn the corner and you start improving, what you're going to notice that what doesn't, what doesn't improve or change is like your community and the, the tax base doesn't change and the kids you serve weren't changing and the challenges that they have at home, it has to happen from the inside out and so that's what i help schools do is help them un help educators understand that when we lean into our collective expertise around the right questions we're unstoppable 
it doesn't matter who the kids are. The kids just provide context. It doesn't matter who the kids are and where they come from and what they look like and whether daddy's home or not. All that is context. Yeah. If we lean into our collective, our collective genius. Unfold the soul. Get to the leaning tower of Pisa. Yeah. To fully unfold it. the soul. That's right. You got to build wealth so you can go see the leaning tower of Pisa. What a great story, man. I do believe in the power of a single experience, right? That touched your heart, touched your soul, and you ran with it. Good for you. Yes, sir. I appreciate it. Ken, um, you know, a lot of people look at you. Oh, it's easy. He's got books. He travels. He, you know, he's funny. He can present. You know, but how? Like how? How do you do it? Tell me your writing process. There's so many school leaders that that want to give more. They just they don't know how to do it. Do you sit down at the alarm clock and write? Do you write on the plane? Do you you know? What's your what's your what's your secret? What's your secret sauce? I read this book by Stephen Pressfield. It was written in 2011. Um, I think my sister recommended some clip he was doing. Stephen Pressfield, The War of Art. And like the style of ruthless equity is, is an homage to, to this cat who mm. finds a way to punch you in the mouth with, in the fewest words possible. And one of the things he talked about was, because I don't like to write. I'm going to tell you up front. I don't, I've got colleagues. Like my co-author just wrote his 21st book. I, I don't like to write. <laughs> but as my friend and mentor, Anthony Muhammad, taught me 15 years ago, he said, Ken, people know you as a speaker and you're a great speaker. He said, but people know me as a speaker and I have books. And people who've never heard of me will pick up my book. Yeah. And it will spread the message. And so... What Pressfield talks about in this book is, look, there's not going to be a moment where the clouds part and the sun is shining. It's just at its apex. And the temperature is perfect outside and you're at the lake house where you can take a weekend and just write. <laughs> he basically says, and this is his latest book, put your ass where your heart wants to be. <laughs> and what he basically says is you he doesn't use the word ruthless, <clears throat> but he says you write by sitting down and start writing. And you write every day. I don't care if it's a line or two, a paragraph, an idea, you write. Now, he does it every day. Yeah. Now, when I decide I'm going to write and I'm, I'm working on my next project now, I make sure that every day I sit down. I, I typically start with questions I want to answer. And so for this next book, I'm, it keeps me up at night that the same five, quote unquote, subgroups underperform across our nation, no matter where I go, urban, suburban, rural, extra rural, doesn't matter. And every audience I sit in front of, homogeneous, heterogeneous, diverse, doesn't matter. If I say name the five groups, they can all name the five groups. Black boys, Hispanic boys, kids that don't speak the King's English, particularly Spanish, uh, kids with IEPs, right? And kids who come from low-income households, living in poverty. And Mike Maddows asked a question from the stage, and I, ironically, I just talked with him last night. He was given a keynote. I think it was 2014, man. It just changed my life. He, he went over those five groups, and he said to the audience, listen, either we're saying the members of those groups are genetically predisposed to lower levels of intelligence, or we might have a subconscious sliding scale of expectations in our country. It's one of the two. And we know the first one's ridiculous. So 
I'm now trying to figure out like what I'm trying to ask questions. I'm asking questions. I write the questions out and then I attempt to answer them. So that that's my writing process. I, I ask questions that I'm struggling with. I attempt to answer them. And then when I'm done dumping all my thoughts, then I try to go to research to see if I can validate it, support it. Like we talked about off air, I'll find practitioners who are making things happen, who are, you know, contrarians in that sense, folks who are getting results. I don't have a, I don't have a great scientific process for writing, but I believe in the power of three. So no matter what it is, whether it's, you know, a new app, a new project, whatever it is, once you decide you're going to do it, my rule is you got to make three moves a day. So if it's writing, sending an email, setting up a pocket, whatever it is, you got to make three small moves a day in the service of advancing that work. Because again, there's no, <clears throat> what Pressfield hammered me with was there's, there's no moment, right? There's, there's no great moment. And the enemy is always after you. And in his book, the enemy is resistance. Like there's always a reason to not write. There's always a reason to not put your thoughts on paper. A lot of times it's about, uh, we're afraid of what other people think about us. I mean, we're in an age where uh, I don't I wouldn't call it narcissism, but we we are like our, like we're with social media. Social media has like really made our skin really thin. And I think there's a lot of genius out there, and people are afraid to fail and afraid of what others think about them. And I am too. Like I, those gremlins still live in my head. I just on my best days, I just. I just invite them in, tell them to have a seat, and then I'm going to get to work. <laughs> Ken, I love it, man. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> And I you, love man. that these moments in your life all came from reading, right? There's a true educator. All yeah. leaders are readers. And you just yes, shared sir. two or three uh, life-changing moments that came from books, man. So way to model that. Thank you, brother. Yeah. I love it. Ken, we, we're running out of time, but I got to ask you, how does a New Yorker start wearing a cowboy hat and make that part of his persona? How does that, how does that happen? I know I you're know, in Georgia man. now. Only, but... that's, the, that's the only downside of going back home, and I'm going to sweep my wife away for a great weekend in New York in October. And there we go. I love going back home, but, man, they treat me like a visitor, man, like if I'm out of town because of the damn hat. And I've, I've, I've always loved hats. Like in high school, like Indiana Jones was big and I had like a cheap Indiana Jones hat. I've always loved hats. And I think I was in uh, Dallas a few, several years ago and decided to take a chance. And I went to a, a hat store and bought a Stetson and Bam. felt a little weird in it. But uh, after a while, it wasn't my intention to make it part of my branding. What happened was, when people don't remember my name, they'll say the guy with the hat. And I was like, wow, that's something. And then one day I presented or I created a video with no hat on. And and one one person online was like clutching her pearls, like, oh my God, where's the hat? I'm looking for the hat. I was like, I'm sorry, ma'am. I'll put the hat back on. And so it's just become a part of my my branding sense. It doesn't make any sense. I disappoint a lot of Texans who asked me if I'm from Texas if because yeah. it's a nice hat. I, I have my hats made. So it, people yeah. who, folks who wear hats can see they, they know a nice hat. Yeah. But I'm, I'm a fake cowboy. I've got boots, but I'm a fake cowboy. <laughs> 
You wear it well. Uh, I actually was in a hat store myself in Colorado. I have a huge dome and I was kind of like, I got, you know, and uh, got yes. me thinking. So I'm, that's I'm, part of why I have a maid because I've got, I got a lot of brains like you, yeah. like you, I got a lot of brains <laughs> and I, I found a guy in New Mexico who, who makes the hats. I saw someone in the audience. I was working in New Mexico and I was like, that guy's got a great hat. And he said, my yeah. brother-in-law makes them like a blacksmith. So yes, he's been my hatter since. And that, that's how that happened. Well, it fits the brand. It fits the message. You're bold. You're not afraid. You, you've stepped out on your own, but you're modeling, uh, you know, how to put yourself out there. So kudos Thank to you. you. Thank you. Ken, is there something that you wanted to touch on that I haven't asked you? Boy, oh boy. Um, no, I listen. And I don't know how else to say this. I don't do this for sales. I don't like my, my, my gas bills paid. Like it's we're I'm doing okay, but not humbly. I know I've written a book that is unlike any book that's been written for educators. And I, I truly believe in this day and age with so much noise coming in on one side about why kids can't yeah. and why we're persecuted and abused and blah, all the martyr stuff. I have a counter message and I, I, I believe it needs to be in the hands of every educator in North America. And I'm, I'm on a mission to make that happen um, because like we're teaching our future and I know we can make magic for kids during our contracted duty day. Right. I'm not, I'm not asking educators to work 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I've even changed my stance on homework. I think homework should be, abolished completely yeah. if we can't yeah. get it done in six or seven hours can't get it done i don't i don't want my kids to come home i got to turn into an algebra teacher i i, I want to spend time with them i want teachers to uh relax and refuel and then come back to this very complex and rewarding work of changing kids lives and you did it and you hit it and here here it is there uh, again thank you title. thank you I do recommend it. Um, you inspired me, right? You inspired Thank me to reach brother. those hearts of, of those kids that I'm not reaching, that I might look different of, and uh, they belong. Uh, and I love how That's you right. said it today on the That's show. Right. If you don't have the key, really let, let, let's, let's see if somebody else on staff has got the key. That's the thing. Like we don't. When you're ruthless, you don't care where the answer comes from. You just want the answer. Amen. Amen. Ken, let's roll to rapid fire. Um, these are quick answers. The first thing that pops in your head, are you ready? Let's do it. Let's do it, man. Last book you read. Boy, oh boy. Five Families by Selwyn Robb. I haven't watched the news in 35 years, but I am consumed with organized crime history from every culture on earth. And this is a monstrous book that talks about the, the five families and immigration and you know, how they ran America for a while. You're a, you're a true uh, reader. I love it. Last movie you saw. Oh my man. That has, that's been a minute. I haven't been to a theater. You know, I think it was, uh, so it wasn't Hamilton, mm. but Lindwell Miranda, what's the next musical that he did? Uh, West, into, uh, the, not, uh, into the, uh, into the Bronx, uh, into yes. the, uh, the, not a that one. Tale. yeah. <laughs> I know what you're talking. Yes, that one. Whatever that one is, that's the last one I saw in theaters. And New Yorkers love that one too. They did. They oh did. yeah. Um, you travel a lot, you know. Let's say you're going back to New York with your wife, but where's a favorite place of yours to travel? Oh man, I'll tell you what, a brand new favorite place is Newport, Rhode Island. 
Yeah, did some work in Massachusetts, flew her up, and we spent a few days in Newport. And man, oh man, we just we love the water. It's the tranquility of it. We don't need to swim in it, but we love the water. So Newport, Rhode Island has become a new favorite place to go. Awesome. Uh, you're a big public speaker. You, you got a crowd. Maybe the energy's not there. What's your go-to crowd pleaser speaking strategy? Man, oh man, a provocative video, a provocative hook. You know, and I, I have a, a whole folder of them, just something that gets you to stop. I don't care if you order on Amazon, you could be sending a text. It's going to make you stop dead in your tracks. And yes. I try to tell educators, because I get asked all the time, you know, what do you do with unmotivated kids and kids who don't want to learn? And I tell them, I said, guess, I said, I don't want to offend you, but when you guys come to PD, aside from a conference, you don't want to be here either. Like you come in with your laptop loaded, you save all your emails for when I'm presenting and it's on me to engage you enough to keep you off the email, keep you off of Amazon, keep you off of DraftKings. That's my burden. And I switch it up, multimodal, get them out of their seats, try to get them thinking. I've taken less of a prescriptive approach to the work and try to get educators thinking more instead of handing out a bunch of templates and you know, outlining steps. Love it. Uh, the best administrators are the best because? They assume nothing. They prepare for everything. They respond based on evidence. Mm. And they know doing it alone only happens in movies. So leaders create, leaders create leaders and leaders give all the credit away. They give all the credit away because they know when your staff looks good, they look good. That's a great answer, man. Really, really good. You shared some of your passions today. Uh, what's a pet peeve of yours? Something that gets under your skin? Oh, man. Not using a letter opener. You talking about, you're talking about professionally? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like you, you, you Pro- want to clean up. <laughs> yeah, so in my personal life, it's refrigerating ketchup and not using a letter opener. What are we doing? <laughs> what are we doing? toilet paper that rolls under instead of over like that those are things that annoy me um my daughter opened an envelope yesterday she had her fingers what are you doing let her open it all over the house in the glove compartment every car i I, I would say it it, in in our field it's it's when leaders treat teachers like the low group when i hear Mm -hmm. things like i don't think our staff's ready for that it's like well how do you expect them to hold a crown above kids head and challenge them grow tall enough to wear it if um you know if you're afraid of you know, rattling them or, you know, talking about change. I think we as leaders, we've, we've, we've lost the, the realization that I call it the blessed burden of leadership. You've got leaders see the dawn before the day, right? You, you, you're not going to talk teachers into buy-in. You're not going to TED talk them into buy-in. You're not going to conference them into buy-in. You're not going to speak with them into buy-in. Buy-in occurs when you engage with new work and get new results and as leaders, when we know that XYZ protocol is going to yield great results, but your teachers don't see it on the front end, you have to understand that it's, it's a part of leadership that your approval rating may take a hit in the short run. Yeah. And so that, and I would say when leaders co-sign on excuses, I understand why some teachers come up with excuses. I get it because the stuff is in your face that kids are coming to school with. But when a leader sympathizes and 
cosigns on excuses instead of empathizing and saying, let me go get you the supports to do the right work. It drives me crazy. Yeah. That's a great, that's a great distinction you just shared. That really Thank is a you, great distinction. You could empathize yes. and not sympathize. Empathize all day long. Like I know it's frustrating. I know you tried, I know you tried everything, but we got to get them there. So right. let's see all you've done. So it can kind of inform like what I need to go hunt and gather. Like my job as principal is to hunt and gather, hunt and gather, protect and defend, hunt and gather, whatever teachers need to do the right work. I can't do excuses. I can't do excuses. Right. Cause these kids, you know, we got, we got to turn kids out who are ready for society, but I will hey. go, I will move hell and high water, go get you what you need, but I can't do excuses. At 8 a.m. on Saturday morning, I feel. Uh, blessed to be alive, man. I'm in my 50s, brother. So every day I wake up on the right side of dirt is a good day. Like that's like my day starts off great when I wake up and then everything else, <laughs> everything else follows. It may move the needle a little to the left or right. But at 8 a.m. when the eyes open, I feel blessed to be alive, brother. Two words to describe yourself. Oh, man. So action-oriented is hyphenated. That's hyphenated. I'll give you one. I'll give you yeah. one for that. So that's action-oriented and visionary. Like I, mm. I can stand at point A and see point Z. And um, I have a talent for seeing more in people than they see in themselves and helping bring that forward. Love it. Love it. Something about Ken Williams that people do not know about. Boy, oh, boy. I love history. So Newport, Rhode Island. Yes, so the Gilded Age, all the Gilded Age mansions, all the robber barons. Just, I love that stuff. Um, I'm an old school dirt. I drive two. One car is 47 years old. The other one's 50 years old. I just drove the the 47 year old car to get renovated. So I, I drive old cars. I listen to old music. I carry cash. I write checks. <laughs> so yeah, that that's probably what people don't know. Is I I. I I, I'm old school, man. I'm older now, but I've always been old school and I drive really old cars. That's my meditation. I just run errands for no reason. Good for you, man. Good for you. Ken, uh, your website scrolling below here, Unfold the Soul. Uh, yes, is sir. that the best way people to get in touch with you? Hi, if they want to contact the, you that, about speaking. And yeah, that is the best way. And and I'll, I'll shoot you another link that will just take you to everything I do, just like it's right there on the screen. But okay. unfoldthesoul.com is the best way to get in touch. Here and, it is, um, man. There he is. Like to some of our listeners. Yeah, yeah, I love it. I love the hat. I love the whole thing, man. Uh, Thank you, Ken, this was great. We're going to get rolling. You have a quote? You have something that, that touches your heart that you want to uh, uh, end us with? Yes, 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 yes. So if you follow my work, you'll see the hashtag start with the crown. Yeah. Right. And that's based on a quote that was on the back of a college brochure when I ordered the brochure from my alma mater, Morehouse College, when I was 16. Wow. And it just stuck with me for years. And then, I don't know, five or six years ago, I realized that's equity work. And so the, 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 the quote I think about is, you know, equity comes down to starting with the crown. And the quote on the back of the brochure was, above the head of every student, Morehouse holds a crown. She challenges her students to grow tall enough to wear. And so I just replaced Morehouse with the school. Yeah. Right. So whatever the school is, you hold that crown, you hold it still and you challenge students, support them to grow tall enough to wear it. And some are going to outgrow it, but we can no longer have all these rungs and uh, fancy dumbed down groups beneath the crown. So hold the crown above the students' heads 
and grow them tall enough to wear it. Start with the crown, not with the kid. Ken Williams, everybody. Ken, you you told these stories of these monumental experiences so beautifully. Uh, you're, you're what educators need. Uh, if you're looking for a speaker, you're looking for a great book to motivate you, please check him out, uh, Unfold the Soul. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Those I appreciate beautiful. you having this platform, man. This is, yeah, uh, man. Yeah, it's... I admire guys like you who who do this, the podcast, and you find guests. I that would be the that would be the other thing that people don't probably don't know about me is that I'm an outgoing introvert. So yes. yeah. I enjoy being on podcasts with people like you, but uh it's just not my wiring to do one of my own like that. So yeah. well, I appreciate the quiet, it. The solace uh works, but you hit the mark today. I appreciate you. Thank you, brother. Um Guys, you have Ken's contact information here. If I could help you in any way, don't hesitate to reach out at Andrew Murata 21 uh, This was Ken Williams. We're going to sign off. Ken, stay on the line a moment, and we'll get this music rolling. Thanks so much for tuning in. Keep surviving and thriving, friends. Bam.